The Feeling Sound podcast is brought to you in association with Urbanista. Urbanista is an online magazine for creatives where you can reach a like-minded audience of fellow urbanistas. My good friend Jan asked me if I'd like to go to a concert with her husband Kim, as she couldn't go. And that was the first of many outings we've been on together over the past few years. Kim's connection to music goes deep. It's an interesting combination of seeing artists live and also collecting associated memorabilia. His enthusiasm for music has never waned. And his fascination with the artists that produce that music is insatiable. It's at the very heart of what makes him tick. And it's the reason why he's such a good friend of mine. How would you describe your relationship with music? I don't know how you can live without music. I just don't know how people can. But there's people that do. They've got no interest whatsoever in music. But, um, yeah, it's like a drug. Yeah, it really is. Um, I, I just think that if you're a fan of music, it's in you. It's it's there. It's in your DNA. You know, you are what you are, and if you if you appreciate music and love music, then that's just part of you. I'm a fan first and foremost. I think it's fair to say that you and I have a mutual love of all things music, and that's really at the heart of our friendship. I mean, I think one of the first things that we did together as friends was we went to see Deaf School, didn't we? Oh yeah, yeah, Deaf School. Yeah, yeah. It was still a great, a great band from back in the day, and. Um, I just love them to bits. They're just good pop songs. They're just proper songs. Uh, that first album is just a classic album, and you know, and it's like anything. Anyone that's got debut albums which stand the test of time, and that's one of them. But The thing about the Deaf School concert for me was that it was it was like a cabaret. It was an experience. Yeah, it's a community as well, isn't it? Community of people. You know, if you go, you'll see the same faces all the time. You know, and that will be because it had such an impact on them at a certain age, that certain moment in time. It's like now, you know, I go to to, to um, follow Stone Foundation. It's got that same community thing. It's the same people who travel for miles. Back on the road again, following a band, you know, and um, I'd never thought I'd be still doing that now. And that's what happens. And if you, you know, if you, if you, you have an affinity to that band, or it just ticks the right boxes. And uh, you know, if you, if you're a loyal type fan, that's what happens. What's your earliest recollection of, of music? What, what's the first thing you remember? Uh, for me, it was it was obviously I used to collect Northern Soul back in the day, and then you you go and see those bands: The Drifters, Jolly Johnson, The Bandwagon, Edwin Starr, Four Tops. It was all that circuit, really. You know, you had the records, and obviously they played all the um, Civic Halls or whatever, and, and Solomon Burke, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then um, defining moment for me. 1972, Bowie at the Hard Rock in Manchester, the first one, and then the second one, and then Free Trade All, and, and it goes on 
from then onwards, you know. So that association or uh, infatuation with Bowie is, is still there today. I can't believe you've hit me with that one straight on. Free trade hall, Bowie. I mean, uh, you know, there's not much that can compete with that, is there? I think the um, the early gigs, the what I can remember of the hard rock one, the first one, is that there was hardly anybody there, you know, and uh, his wife at the time, she was just sat on a chair in the middle of the, the middle of the, on the floor, and we just lay on the floor watching it. And I can always remember in the, the merchandise store, there was, um, you could buy for 30p uh, transfers, Siggy Snyder's transfers, and this year I managed to get one of those, tran that transfer set, and that's taken me what forty forty odd years to to get a, to get a copy of one, and uh, it was a lot. It's a lot more than thirty p, you know. So and again, I I I just you become a collector, don't you? You buy the first record, you buy another one, and then it does become obsessive, you know. And that's what happened with Bowie. It was everything. I I collected everything. Jeez, I must have spent a fortune on um, bootlegs, of course, vinyls at the time. Tapes in particular, you know, lots of tapes of live shows. And it just got, as he grew in stature and everything, and it was things like the Serious Moonlight Tour, you know, it was, it, it was, it was, it was what it was, but it wasn't as good of, as going to watch him say in Halifax or, or whatever, you know, it was, it, it was too big. You're on that circuit, you're on that Phil Collins circuit, you know, where I think you lose something. Some bands can carry it, and he did, he did at the time. But I bet you, you, you know, it wasn't wasn't his best moments. Talk to me about what that was like to be in the room watching Bowie and amongst like you know twenty five people and a dog and a string. Fantastic. I think it's what it was. You, you, the things you remember about it. I remember they didn't do five years because the keyboard packed up. So they didn't, I always remember that, and that's that's a moment. And then the second time he played, I can always remember White Light, White Heat. When the second time he played there, and then, as he as he obviously grew and he got more popular, um, Free Trade Hall was the I think it was Aladdin Sane, yeah I think it was Aladdin Sane tour. I've still got the programs, the bootleg programs, and the other props. Still got a scarf. How sad is that? You know, the tickets and everything. I, I've collected all those and I, I just, I, I became a collector then and I'm a collector of anything from tickets to set lists to just literature that was stuck on the wall or whatever to do with passes or whatever passes. And the problem is now, if you go to a gig, those things now are, are, are more collectible because people put a value to them where back in the day, you collected them because you wanted to collect them, you know. And now, you if you, I still collect set lists when I can, but you, you fight for it, you know. And I'm a bit too, bit too old for that now, you know, to go and. But I still collect the odd ones and everything. Make a point of trying to get them anyway, or a poster, or whatever. I just just put it away in a box with ticket stubs and badges and and everything, you know. So I just became a collector of that type of stuff, and so. What's happened over the years now is that people have made careers out of it, selling stuff, merchandise, and are they real or are they forged, you know? 
talk to me about why there is this fascination for it then. What made you go to the depths of, of having this additional um, hook? How does that amplify your experience with music? I, th- I think, uh, you know, I can only sum it up, you know, like... Um, is that you go to a gig and you go once, don't you? You go see the band and they may well play the same set. They may do, you know, change a few numbers around. But they got to a stage where I was going to every one, you know, and, and my wife, Jan, would say, my God, why are you going to every one? But it's, it's different, different atmosphere. It's amazing. Go to Scotland, you know, where it's different than, than in London or whatever or certain parts. And it's the atmosphere in the room. You know, and I've been many times, even a couple of years ago, I went to um, see Shame down at the Ritz in Manchester and my son, Josh, said, uh, you need to see the support band. You've got to get there for the support band. So when you saw HMLTD as a support band, how did it make you feel? It was just the first opening bars. Um, I looked at my mate, my mate looked at me and we went, shit. And it was just fantastic sound that came out of the speakers. And I remember driving home that night down the motorway thinking, do you know, this is why I do this. Because after a while, you get on a... On a um, on a circuit, and, and nothing excites you anymore. Then all of a sudden, these things happen, these, as I've said before, magic moments, and uh, it just makes it all worthwhile. And that's what being a fan of music's all about. I think that added bonus of going to see someone, though, and getting that additional buzz off of the support bands is amazing. What do you think it is about the live performance that especially excites you? It has to be a balance of the atmosphere in the room. You know, the other night um, when I went to see Trampoline at the Deaf Institute in Manchester, it was the audience, and Jack Jones in particular, who was like just a modern-day poet. It was from the moment he came on stage, it was you just knew it'd be a great night. Great night, great night. You know, a few days before, when we went to see Inhaler, it was an underwhelming gig. What was the difference between the two gigs at the same venue within one week, day apart, why was one better than the other? You know, one felt like a corporate one, and one felt like, you know, just a real good, small venue, good atmosphere. The reason I like uh, the Deaf Institute, I think it's the best best venue in Manchester. It's just something about it. 260 capacity venue, and it's just got a feel about it. Talk to me about Eric's in Liverpool. Eric's, uh, well, for me in 1976, when I came to work in, in town, um, that was that was the place to go. And we just used to go all the time. I used to, uh, I had the excuse as well, because I used to get the train into town and uh, I used to, t- to go to the matinees. That was the excuse that I could get in early, see the band, and I'll be home for 8 o'clock. 
you know, or whatever. So um, Eric's was a special place. And I think for people that went to it, and I don't think they knew at the time the, the significance of it now, but um, I think we were just lucky to see Joy Division, God knows how many times. Gang of Four again, Human League, Susan the Banshees. Fond memories. Standout ones, which ones are they? Yeah, I can remember going to see you two at the GMEX. We managed to get in and um, had a black bomber jacket on at the time. So it I looked like security or whatever. Anyway, we, we managed to get near the side of the stage and all and that. And I think a mate of mine, John, was talking to Wiley. And um, they started to close everything down because you two were going to come on. Anyway, they, they, they boxed us in. So we just walked to the side right by the, by the monitors inside the... Uh, the stage area and uh, I turns to me left a little bit into the show and uh, Lou Reed's standing there and it's like unbelievable because he was, he came on to do um, Perfect Day as a guest artist it was just amazing and I've only had another moment like that at Eric's seeing the, the special with Madness supporting and again, it was one of the matinee shows, I think. And I turned around and, and Costello was standing next to me. And he had my little membership ticket at the time. And I've still got it when he asked him to autograph it. I was a bit too intimidated to ask Lou Reed for an autograph. But uh, that that's just like, it was surreal. Just a perfect day. Drink sangria in the park. And then later... When it gets dark, we go home. The Clash, for me, were, were just the band. Even to this day, I spend more money buying Clash stuff, be it books, whatever, you know, and I still do it. Christ, I don't know how many copies I've got certain albums, but they're just the timeless songs, good songwriters. The Clash are really still there to this day. What would your standout Clash track be? White Man Hammersmith Pally would be my perfect Clash song. Where does it take it? Hey? Oh, it's just, it's just the song. It's just the song. It's my ringtone on my phone. It's just the song, you know. Doesn't get any better really than that. It kind of sums up a good single, you know, a good a good song really for me. Um, and there's some really good, you know, there's some good standout songs for me. Weller, Weller's fantastic as a musician. He's just got better and better. Even even the you know Sonic Kicks and those. I remember going down to uh, the Roundhouse Sonic Kicks gigs, and I, I can I can see the audience, you know, lads soul lads or whatever moaning that it wasn't this and it wasn't the jam it's moved on since then you've got to grow up and you're mature with age and you have a catalogue and, and and that's all part of your legacy at the end of the day but I think now if you look at him now he's just got better and better his voice is fantastic it's just a class voice a very soulful voice and if you listen to early jam stuff you can see why he doesn't listen to it because it sounds so tinny it just lacks depth doesn't it you, you mentioned soul there you mentioned soulfulness how much do you think that emotional connection enhances your experience I think you can just get lost in the music don't you you just get lost in the moment and I think that's why reggae music is is just so good as well 
this last lot since lockdown, I spent more money on reggae albums than I've ever done before. In fact, I'm I'm seeing the Abyssinia. I'm going to uh, Brighton to see them next year, yeah, before they die. You know, before they all pass away. <laughs> you know, but that uh, that album is just stunning. That was albums that they did in, back in the day, and a lot of the other stuff. So I've, I've spent a bit of time now catching up on that more and more. Every single track is just a fantastic album. It's amazing, you know. And I bought an American import copy as well, as well as all the other stuff. It's just great. I just love the graphics. I just just love everything about them. But it's such a great album to listen to. And there's a few like that. Um, the Red album. That's a great album as well. It doesn't. It doesn't get any better, Mark. With that stuff, it doesn't get any better. In fact, at the moment, I'd say I'm listening to more reggae dub music than I've ever done before. Exploring the dub and reggae connection a little bit more, what is it about that genre of music that makes it so utterly fascinating? I just think it's, I just think to listen to it, it just sends you to another place. I think it's just fantastic. I really, really do. If you want, if you want to wind down, I don't think there's anything better. You can't, it just moves your body, doesn't it? Whether if you've got if you've got no rhythm at all, which I haven't, and and it still does, it still makes you know your body move. Then it, it it taps into something, doesn't it? And I find it I find it absolutely fantastic. And I think the older stuff, and I'm reading a lot of stuff lately on um, the newer artists, you know, that come through over the last ten years, and and that's affected by you know analog and digital and all that, and and all the bits that have kind of fertilise, bit of rap, a bit of this, bit of that, put it all together, and they've got more reference points to go from. You know, whether it's as good as the older stuff, I don't know. But, you know, for me, it's, it, it's, it just doesn't, that doesn't get any better, that. The old, the stuff, Johnny Osborne and all that stuff. Fantastic, you know, scientist stuff and all that. It's, it's a different world, isn't it? What do you think? You know, the 70s put out so much good stuff. Just unbelievable. You know, that Joe Gibbs stuff and everything. Oh, brilliant. I think you're like me. You get really emotional oh, about yeah. music. I do. It, it makes me well up inside sometimes. Yeah. And you do have those little anchors that you go back to and you, and, you, and you go back there and you think, God, I can't listen to that without feeling really emotional about it. it I can see it in you and I, and I know it happens in me. What, what do you put that down to? You know, I don't know. I mean, I've done it a few times at gigs. I can remember Costello, Manchester Free Trade Hall, Oliver's Army Tour. Moment there, you know, somewhere near the end. And it might have been Oliver's Army, it might have been something else. Um, and a tear to me, and I'm thinking, what the, what, why am I, why? I think if you if you're into music as well as listening to music and you go to the to the gigs, 
the live experience, the queuing up, waiting, trying to get their autograph, all that type of stuff. And you think to yourself, why am I still doing this at a certain age? And or even trying to get tickets, or back in the day when you had to you had to queue up for tickets or get a postal order. Write a postal order, stamped addressed envelope. You know, we're doing that. I'm saying to the lads, and, I, and I'm thinking, shit, I don't know how I did this. And I, I've got quite a good U2 collection. And, you know, I went to the gigs. I went to every show up and down the country. And how I did it, I don't know. Go to Wembley one night, come back to Liverpool, sleep at work, drive back the other night. And you think to yourself, why do you do that? But you just... You do. That, that's been a great journey. That has been a great journey. But the problem with bands like that now, if you, if you take the last tour, to get tickets to see those bands where you, you, know, you want to get near the front or you want to take your son or whatever, I think this last tour, that, the last one they did when they did the arenas, um, I refused to pay those £500 prices for this or in the red zone or whatever. And I bought the cheapest tickets right at the back right the concrete at the back you know and the sound was great the view was what it was like an ant but i've seen them like that before and um i do be that's difficult now especially when they want to take your kids and you, and you if you've got kids now i've got two sons and we you know we do the class and bit and all the bits so um it gets more and more expensive you know so it's that balance isn't it so when you're paying 12 pound 50 for a ticket like I've just done before for trampoline. Then that's 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 brilliant, that you know. So uh, it's it's difficult, but I can understand. The bigger the band, the bigger the overheads, and and that's how it that's how it pans out, doesn't it? You have got to play to more people, got to sell more tickets, etc., etc. You've mentioned your sons, Josh and Charlie, yeah. and 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 I know them, and and I know how important music is to them, mm. and I reference it back to my own kids, and I think well. From my point of view, I'm so glad that I've given my kids a, a bit of a kind of musical background and a bit of depth in their musical knowledge. How important is that for you? Um, I just say, you know, I, I've kind of, where there's an influence in there, there must be, I suppose, as a parent. But, you know, there's, there's a collection of records there or singles or CD, whatever. You know, there's a, quite a big collection there. And right the way across the board. And what I like about my two sons one it's a great excuse that I can still go to gigs you know and, and I would go anywhere but I'd be go by myself so now I can take the boys can go it's just great to go with them they're like mates really as opposed to your sons and I think it's what it's done it's given them a broader spectrum of things to listen to or if they want to they can go and put the album on you know I made a f- point of buying them record decks and speakers and vinyl and, and they buy their own vinyl now and I still will buy vinyl as stuff comes out and um, either give it to Josh or Charlie or whatever, you know, and let them build up their own collection. And then they can go on their own way, can't they? I'm picking up stuff off them, which is great, because you listen to some and, you're, you, you know, you have a certain there, and then I still try and keep my ear to the ground, but they're a lot younger and it's a different, it's a different game. Give me some examples how music has interacted with you across the whole of your life and your career. Yeah, well, for me, music was always um, a passion. I, it, 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 the pressure of work, listening to music, took you away from that pressure. In about 89, 89 it must have been, I started to do a little bit of work um, in that arena, you know, ads, 
for bands. Um, then I started to do single covers, album covers, just just odd, odd ones, and I, um, through one thing and another. And then I, from the ads, I did a few videos, and I had to run the videos for a while. And it, it, what happened then was that it's where the the passion for music becomes work, if you know what I mean. And and there came an instant. I did a video, and and the record company didn't like it, and because it wasn't commercial enough or whatever, and now it's been seen to be, you know, people name check it or whatever. Um, but at that time, you know, and they said, oh, well, you know, we don't like the video and we're not going to pay for it. I said, well, hang on, I'll pay, you know, it's cost me a lot of money to do it. And it wasn't, and then I thought, oh, God, get out of this now and just get back to work again because it, it, it didn't become enjoyable. Talk to me about your association and, and your interaction with the Charlottes. Oh, with the Charlies, right. So the Charlies, I started at the very beginning when when they first started and I used to do bits for them, like the first demo cassette cover and all that. And over the years, I just developed a relationship with the lads. For the first 20 years, I used to go either on tour with them or whatever and just have a video camera and just film stuff. So I built up, you know, a fair collection of stuff over the years and and some magic moments in there. You know, and um, I love any band. It, their playground is the stage. You know, and it, it's it's like anything. You can go to a gig, and it's the atmosphere of the moment, isn't it? You try and create that with a live album or whatever. It's very very difficult if you ever do, if you ever can, and um, and it's the same with getting an image or or, or a bit of footage or stuff. I I prefer trying to find an image through the wires or back of the speaker, I don't know, until you get there, that, that frame the shot nice or you just see a bit of Tim or a bit of Martin or or Tony or whoever, you know, I prefer those type of shots. Um, anyway, I did that for about 20 years and um, I'm doing a little bit this this on this tour, on this next tour, I'm doing a few, um, few videos that they're going to play at the back when they're doing certain songs. So I'm going to do a bit of stuff for them, which is nice, really. But it is a tour which is 31 years, you know, and I think, for, and I've been there. I'm still, I'm still around, if for want of it. I've seen people come and go, but I seem to be just there, you know, and whatever. So, and they've been, you know, they've been great and name checked me a couple of times, which is quite nice. Um, I don't really go after that, but... Um, yeah, it's it's quite nice, you know. But they've, you know, they, they've given me a window as well, you know, to do stuff I like. And then I've done a few other bits and bobs along the way. But um, it's just, it's just, I love, I just love it. I just love the backstage side of things and the setting up of the gear and all that. It's just a great atmosphere to it. Even just going to get in backstage or whatever the trucks there, and there's a certain. It's a certain atmosphere or, or whatever. Um, and I suppose the bigger the venue, the concrete jungles behind it and everything. Um, but I've had some fantastic moments with them, you know. Uh, I remember once I was going to um, Centre Parks uh, with the family and uh, I think I think Martin around me or John at the time and said, uh, "Can you could you video us tomorrow night? I said, you know what, mate? I can't and I'm going to Centre Parks. I said, why? He said, oh, well... Um, we're playing and, and Paul Weller's coming on. I went, oh, just give me a minute. <laughs> I'll come back to you. 
Anyway, sorted out. Jan went down there to to, to Centre Parks, and I followed in another car. And because uh, he had to be there, he had to be there, you know. And it, it was great, you know. It was good to get a bit of Weller and you know and stuff like that, Gallagher and all that. So and uh, it's just to capture the moment, really. It's not not to say you've been there. It's just to you know. It's just to capture that moment when X is talking to X, you know, and that. And I think if you can get a bit of that on film, and 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 you can do it without sticking a camera in people's faces and I've never been one for the best camera or whatever I suppose it's like it, it, you just I'll, I'll, whatever's there and you'll just work with it and if it's out of focus it's out of focus so what doesn't matter old school analogue old school doesn't matter doesn't matter mate doesn't matter as long as you get the image I think for me I've, I've had that a few times in my life when you get to yeah, you get to work with bands, and and I mean, I, I remember I played one of the first gigs that the Stereophonics ever performed in front of the A and R set, and the same with uh, Ocean Colour Scene, yeah. and, uh, and and they were special moments, you know, yeah. really young up and coming bands, superb bands who've gone on to bigger and better things, and and they are special moments. One moment in the Charlatans, what would it be? Special moments for me with the Charlies. Um... Oh, it's a difficult one, that. Maybe Tea in the Park was good. Tea in the Park was really good. Um, back in the day when the first Tea in the Park was. I think it was the first one. And they ended up going to the second Tea in the Park. But that time I was photograph. I was doing some stuff with Mike Peters. He just left the alarm and he had the Poets thing there going. And I did a bit with Mike and I did his first album cover. A few bits there. Um... And it gave me the opportunity to see Oasis and Blur and all that lot at that time, you know. Played so it was, I, like, I just I just like the environment of and that's like same with um, Glastonbury. It's just I just like going. It's just it's get harder now, you know. And oh, you know it's, it's getting ridiculous now. It's so corporate. It's it's ridiculous. But I think I think it's it's just the atmosphere, Mark. At the end of the day, it's the atmosphere. You know, you can take your kids there and, and appreciate that, and, and and you can you can give them a love of music. I don't think you can do any more. What track for the Charlatans? Charlie's for me. Um, I'm a, I'm a I'm a great lover of um, the Wonderland album, which for me, as much people will, will do the early stuff um, as an album. Wonderland for me, when it came out. Um, it was different to anything else that was on that landscape at the time, the way t Tim did that Marvin Gaye type vocal, you know, all that high pitched vocals and all that type of stuff. But it changed a lot of things. And I think they got a lot of recognition from their peers, which they so wanted, I think, at the time or around that era. And that to me is a fantastic album, not well liked by many people or people can't get into it. Um, and track wise, there's a few, um, Overrising, which I really do like, um, but it's got to be one to another. Rob's last song that he wrote. One to another, sister and a brother, and a change in the way that you feel. Please meet you, hope we'll never see you. I think it's just a great song, but Rob was great at that type of stuff. I think when he died, obviously it was a big shock to everybody and they had to rewrite it, you know, their history differently. And, and, they've, and they've, they've come back again these last four or five years. 
we, I can't talk to you about talking to you about the alarm. I didn't know anything at all about the oh, alarm right. until I until I met you. Yeah. And then you said you've got to listen to this, and so I went backwards and listened to it. Yeah. And and it, it's been a revelation for me. Yeah, I think I think what people forget. I mean, I, I've been, I've, you know, the same thing. If you followed you two, right, the support bands usually were big country, the alarm, or whatever, and. And it's like when you were, if you followed Oasis in the early days, be the Mannix, Cast, Travis. It was you know, and 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 even earlier than that, I remember going somewhere, some civic hall thing in Northwich, and it was the Cure with support. And it was at that time where every time you go see a band, it'd be the, it'd be the Cure be supported all the time. You know, as a three piece at the time in the early days. And and the alarm were the same. Every time you go see you too, it's the alarm again. Christ, not the alarm. And um, I think it was only when I went to see them play in Manchester, somewhere, Mandela Hall, I think it was at the time, while he played there and Black and all that back in the day. And um, they were good at what they do. It's like Coldplay. At the time, they were good at what they do. Not everybody's thinking, and not even mine at the time, you know. But if you look at Mike, Mike's voice, as Tony Visconti said, He's got an amazing voice. He's got a fantastic voice. And he's a good songwriter. Extremely good songwriter. And he can put, and put a tune together. And I've taken the lads to see them, you know. And it's not everybody's cup of tea. And the audience is a core audience, a communal thing again. They've followed them from day one. I'm not that person. But what you can't take away from, from them, at, that, at the moment in time, they were a good, solid unit. You know, really tight and everything. And then he had some good song, you know, anthems really, aren't they? You know, like Wiley used to write anthem after anthem after anthem and whatever. And um they're good at what they do. Not but not everybody's cup of tea. And I still go and see them, dipping and out and everything. And uh I got to meet Mike, he got a new manager at the time who I knew, and he said, you know, we do some layouts. Anyway, I did some layouts and I think you met Mike and uh yeah, he liked one of them, and we worked it up, and, and we did did that first album. You know, it did, and everything. The show was around the time, and all that. And uh, I've kept in touch with him, or we've kept in touch, you know, ever since. And he's such a lovely guy. Such a, a top top bloke, you know, um, and genuine as well with all that, you know, which is, you know, I assume difficult in this game. Pinch yourself moment then. What would the pinch yourself moment be? Pinch yourself moment? Um, well, moments like that, I suppose, Prince. You know, Manchester Apollo when he turned on the house lights. And he's such a fantastic musician. You know, he's, he's, you know, he's at the top of his game, and he already was at the top of his game. And um, you know that was that was uh, that was the defining moment, and I've had them with you too as well back in the early days, a beach club in Manchester. That was a that was a great gig, Gang of Four. I had some fantastic Gang of Four gigs. I used to love the Gang of Four. Never missed a tour for them, and uh, I used to have a fanzine at the time. I started the fanzine, and what I used to do was that um, I. If I did the article, I was on the front cover. I used to then send it to them, 
and I'll write to them for an art, you know, for an article or whatever. And if they sent it me back and I put it on the front cover, then I'd send it back to them asking them to autograph it. Kanga Four did it for me. Uh, Throbby Gristle did it. I think I've got a crass one as well. And uh, who else? Adamant. That. So, you know, things like that. I think the Gang of Four was just brilliant. And when they reformed in two, it was 2006, I think it was. And I can remember walking in, uh, I think again, I think that might have been Manchester Uni or something. And uh, just walking in and, they, and, they, and they, they kicked off and it was like, it took 20 years off your life. You know, you think, that's fantastic. Just brilliant live band, you know, and um, I think very underrated, but obviously, you know, a cult band one way or another, you know. How would you summarise what music means to you? I think I think music to me is just it's just my life, isn't it? It's just life, isn't it? It's just life. Um, it's everything. I can't see life without music, one way or another. I, do, I, I just can't, and that's it. And at the end of the day, as I started this thing, first and foremost, I'm a fan of music, so it, it, it's not about the money, it's not about this, it's not about that. It's just that I just love it. And uh, I can't sum up any other way, Mark, really. That was Kim Peters on the Feeling Sound podcast. Thanks for dropping by. Speak to you again soon.